studying the book of Galatians. And before we jump in there, I want to tell you about uh, Sean McDowell. He's a, he's a doctor, and he was gathering with these teenagers one time, and he had these teenagers do this exercise. This exercise was to gather together, and they had to define the word freedom. And so these teenagers got together, and they came up with an incredible definition of what they thought the word freedom was. And this is what they came up with. Freedom is being able to do whatever you want without restraint. Now, we live in a free country, and so thankfully, we do have freedom. We essentially have freedom to do whatever we want. And all of us want to be able to do whatever we want. We want freedom. We want to do what we want, when we want, how we want. And we don't want anybody telling us what to do or what not to do. And so to live this way sounds attractive. To live this way sounds like, yes, I want to live freely. But what if I told you this definition of freedom doesn't actually lead to the freedom that you're longing to have, but it actually leads to chaos. It actually leads to not achieving the goal of freedom, but more so it actually can put you in a prison and lock the door behind you in the name of freedom. Let me give you an example. As McDowell's with these students, he tells them about playing music on the piano. Now, if you were to sit at a piano and you wanted to play music, you could go ahead and bang on those keys all you want. And I have done that before. And I know when I sit down at a piano and I am not trained, it does not sound like music. <laughs> it sounds like a bunch of noise. Now, I have the freedom to play music any way I want, but when I try to do it the way that I want, unhindered, it sounds really, really bad. It sounds like a bunch of noise. It doesn't sound like music. Because just because you have the freedom to do something doesn't mean it's going to turn out the exact way you want it. There may be constraints, discipline, doing something the way that the composer told you to do so that you can actually be free and play the music you want to play. Or think about enjoying your life. I think all of us here, in one way or another, want to enjoy our life. And we have different ways that we attribute to that we find enjoyment and pleasure in. For me, my direct enjoyment comes from the choices of foods that I eat. My food is directly tied to my freedom and joy. And if I had the freedom that I wish I really had, I would want to eat from my four favorite food groups all of the time. Wings, chips, candy, and pizza. I'm telling you whether it's six in the morning or midnight at night, I wish I could choose one of these food groups and I would eat from each of these food groups anytime I want. Now, I am a grown adult. I have the freedom to do so. And then we have these things called phones that have these things called apps. And I can push a button and I can get any one of those foods delivered to my house. It's unbelievable. And I have the freedom to eat any of these things. But if I ate all of these foods at every one of my meals, even though I have the freedom to do it, I probably won't live to see 40. You see, you can do whatever you want. You have the freedom to do whatever you want. But when you use your freedom to make decisions that you think will ultimately free you to live the life that you want, don't be surprised if there are consequences to follow. Because we all want freedom. And oftentimes we pursue it in ways that lead to chaos or that lead to restraint and imprisonment, which is the opposite of the freedom that we're called to live with. Some of you know what I mean. 
You have the freedom to live your life how you want. You can choose where you want to work, who you want to date, who you want to marry, how you spend your money, doing all of those things. And you look at your life and you think, with this freedom has come consequences that have really plagued my life and those around me. Because what if I told you that's not real freedom? The freedom that you and I want can only be defined by God in the way that he designed freedom. And I want to tell you, if we can live according to his standard when it comes to freedom, we will truly be free indeed. That's why over the next eight weeks, we want to study this, Paul, this letter of Paul called the letter of Galatians. And what I love about it is that you and I can choose to live freely every day in a way that's not going to lead to chaos or lead to being in some kind of prison, but we can truly live free, the kind of freedom that God has come to give us through Christ. So what I want you to do is I want you to open your Bibles if you have them to Galatians chapter 1. Now, you may have not brought your Bible today. That is totally fine. If you don't own a Bible, we have tons of Bibles in the back that we would love for you just to take on the way out, and it's our gift to you. But I really want to ask you to start bringing your Bible with you in church because not only is it good to have it with you on a Sunday so that you can read some of the text because we're not going to always put all the text on the screen for you, but it also reinforces that habit of also hopefully reading it Monday through Saturday as well, which to me is even more important than just on Sunday. So hopefully let's continue to bring our Bibles together. But today it'll be on the screen for you. You get one week to do that, all right? So here's how this letter starts in Galatians chapter 1. Paul says this. This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus himself and by God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead. All the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. Now, last year, we studied the book of Acts for 28 weeks. And a part of Acts is Paul's missionary journeys to different parts of the world to tell people about Jesus. And one of those areas that he ends up going to is this town called Galatia. And there is a group of churches that he ends up planting in this town of Galatia. And now Paul, he leaves that town in about 50 AD or so. He writes this letter to this group of churches to give leadership from afar, to help them continue to follow Jesus, even though he's not with them in that current time. And as he's writing this letter, you're going to see different themes come out of it. But he starts with a dominant theme that he will carry through throughout the letter that he wants to establish with these churches right from the beginning. Here's what he says in verse 3. He says, may God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. So Paul starts off by saying, look, Jesus has come to rescue you. Now, the, the New Testament is written in Greek, and the word for rescue in the Greek literally can be translated as this, to pluck out, to draw out, or to deliver. To give you a few word pictures to help this come alive, I want you to think about you being in some kind of prison, and there's a lock on that prison, and only Jesus has the key. 
And he comes and he unlocks the prison doors and he takes the doors off forever and says, come, live free. You are free for the rest of your life. You don't have to go back into that prison cell. I've delivered you from that. I have rescued you from that. Or think about you uh, being in the lake and all of a sudden you realize you can't swim and the waters are pulling you down and all of a sudden there's Jesus and he has a life preserver and he throws it into the water and he says, grab onto it. And you grab onto it and he ends up pulling you in and rescuing you from going under once and for all. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That he delivers you or rescues you from something that only he can do. But the question is, what is he doing? And why is he doing that? What is he delivering us from? What is he rescuing us from? Well, again, in the text, it says this. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. Now, I don't think I need to spend a long time explaining to you that the world we live in is evil. Whether it's around the world that we see things happening, in our country, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes, This world is broken. It's fractured. It's not working as it ought. God created it to be good and perfect and at peace. We ought to be at peace with each other. And when you look around, it's anything but peaceful. And so the world is evil. I don't think I have to tell you much more than that. But what I do think I need to convince you of this morning, because we like to think we're a little bit better than we really are, is the evil that's within inside of us. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we are capable of doing some evil and horrible things that come from this heart of ours. I mean, the pride, the selfishness that we operate from. Think about it. If you had a choice to help other people or to help yourself, both consciously and subconsciously, usually we're going to do what's best for us. And maybe you say, well, not all the time. You're right, 99% of the time. (laughs) And maybe you're better than me, so I'll give you the credit. 98% of the time, we are going to choose what's best for us because that's how we operate, and that's how humans operate. We believe we're in control. We believe we are right. We operate out of selfishness. We are God, not just of our lives, but we try to be the God of other people too. And also think about what comes out of our hearts through our words I mean, I have explained this to you before, but when I was in high school, a couple kids picked on me and and talked about my weight, and it still can affect me 20 years later. Just through just sarcasm and joking around, but, but think about when we're in an argument with somebody or trying to make them feel something, and we say things that can truly demolish somebody's life all from what's within See, there's evil on the outside, but there's also evil within. And Jesus says, I've come to rescue you from that. And that's a promise that Paul wants to tell these Galatians from the beginning. Look, you remember what I came to tell you, that Jesus came and he unlocked the prison door once and for all. He delivered you from drowning once and for all. But the problem, though, if you're like me, is this. You come to know Jesus, 
and you realize, yes, he is the only one that can unlock the prison door. You've grabbed onto the life preserver and you say, yeah, I follow Jesus. That's where I find my freedom. That's where I find my hope. That's where I find all that I need. And then pretty quickly, or maybe it's a slow fade. I don't know what it is for you. But over time, we start to look at other things in addition to Jesus to give us the freedom that only he can give us. And that's why for some of us in this room, you call yourself a Christ follower and you realize that Jesus frees you from this life of evil from within and he's bringing you to look like more and more like Jesus, but you look at your life and it feels nothing like freedom. You feel like you're back in that prison cell. You feel like you're drowning all the time and you're thinking, I'm supposed to be free in Jesus, but I don't feel that way. Why? Well, it's one of the main reasons Paul writes this letter to these churches. Because not only do we look to Jesus for our freedom, oftentimes we look to something else as well. A promise that we tell ourselves either consciously or subconsciously that will give us all that only Jesus can give us. And when we look to something else in addition to Jesus, it doesn't lead to freedom. It leads us back to a life that we were rescued from, from Christ alone. Here's a few ways we do that. We buy into the promise of secularism which says that if you grab hold of what makes you happy in this world, you will achieve freedom. I want to just put it in an equation so you can understand how we often add to Jesus. It's Jesus plus happiness equals freedom. So again, it doesn't mean we don't have Jesus. We have Jesus when we come to church. We pray, we give, we serve. I mean, we read the Bible. It's like we have Jesus But along the way, our hearts drift to other things that we think will make us happy. And along the way, we look at life and we're thinking we're not as happy as we thought we would be. Some of those things that our hearts naturally drift to, that the world promises will give us all that you've ever wanted, are things like sex and money and phones and social media, food, notoriety, success, our dream jobs, looks, so many other things that we think, yes, this will make us happy. And I'm telling you, all the things that I just listed, those things are good things. I don't want you to think like, man, Eric's telling me I can't eat food anymore. No, those things are good things. We want to have those things. They're created by God. But when it crosses the line from I want those things. These things are really good to have. To I need these things. Then all of a sudden, you're back in the deep end and you can't swim and you're about to go under. Because these things that supposedly were to make you happy, to give you freedom, to give you the life you wanted, all of a sudden slip through your fingers and you have nothing. And not only do you have nothing, we also forget oftentimes about Jesus in the process. It's what Tim Keller says. He says, if we look to some created thing to give us meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. There's some of us here today who are living with broken hearts. Not just because something happened to you. Maybe it was a death or a breakup. I'm not talking about that kind of broken heart. This is different. The kind of broken heart that you have is so subtle oftentimes. 
It's this nagging feeling that you should have more. And every time you look for it and you have it, it still doesn't give it to you. And it's never enough. And it's insatiable. And the freedom that Jesus alone wants to give you, you've turned to something else. And it's broken your heart. Or what about this? The promise of religion. Keep the rules. And you can earn freedom. Here's it in um, equation form. Jesus plus religion equals freedom. Now, you may think, oh, wait a minute. Jesus plus religion, that, that seems like a paradox. Like, what are you trying to say? Here's what Paul says about it. He says, I'm so shocked, Galatians, that you are turning away so soon from God. Here's how they are doing that. Who called you to himself through his loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news But it is not good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again that we have said before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed." So here Paul is writing to these Galatians. And he's like, guys, what happened? When I was with you, I talked about Jesus and Jesus alone. He can rescue you. He can give you freedom. And now you've turned away from that. But it's interesting. They don't turn away from it altogether. They still worship Jesus. But they started to listen to this group called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers have come along and they said, look, you can have Jesus. And you should have Jesus. Jesus is good. But in addition to Jesus, you also need to follow the law of Moses, just like you did before. So you have the law of Moses and you have Jesus, and that's how you have a relationship with God. And for these Galatians, they're thinking to themselves, okay, that kind of makes sense, because for their whole lives, before Jesus comes on the scene, before Paul visits them, that's how they knew to have a relationship with God. We learned the Ten Commandments, we learned what the law says. And if we, uh, if we followed that law to a T, then God approves of us. We have our faith in him. And what's so great about that on the outside, you can measure that. I've read the law, I've followed the law, I've done the law, I have a relationship with God. I'm doing the right thing. And on the outside, it works. But on the inside, it doesn't. Because the law can't change you from the inside out. And that's why Paul is so angry. I showed you, Paul says, that is Jesus alone, that you are still imprisoned. Even though you followed the law, you still didn't have the relationship with God that you really wanted. Jesus came to give it to you. And now you want Jesus, but then you're adding this back in. And it's not working. And now you may be here and say, well, That makes sense for them, but I don't really follow the law of Moses and I don't have to just follow every commandment and those kinds of things. And I understand that. Some of you say, no, I follow Jesus and I do what he says. But there's many of us who believe Jesus isn't enough. Here's how I know this. Because even though you say Jesus is enough, you read the Bible or you pray or you give, or you serve, you do the things that we are supposed to do in order to tell God, God, I did these things, now you must do these things for me. 
Or God, I'm a good person because I've done this and because I'm a good person, I shouldn't suffer. I mean, I've gone to church all my life and now this is happening to my child. How could this happen? That's religion. That's following Jesus and then adding the law into it, saying to yourself, okay, God, you owe me this. And if we live that kind of life, it's no wonder we don't love reading the Bible or praying or going to church because we just feel like we have to continue to do these things in order to appease God. Or through Jesus himself, he's done that for you. And when we do that, two things happen. They end up hurting us on the inside. One, we end up taking over control. And if you're a control freak in here, you like to be in control. But you also know that control is an illusion. Because when you take control of your life, of other people's lives, I can promise you, your life is chaos in some way. Because we're meant to rebel from that kind of life. Second of all, you follow Jesus, but you add all of these things in order to prove yourself to God. Two things will happen. You will either feel insecure because I didn't do enough, or, and this is worse, you will look down on people who don't do it the way that you do it. It's exactly what Jesus does to these religious leaders, the Pharisees. He comes along and says, great, you're fasting, you're praying, you're reading the Bible. You know the Bible more than anybody. And Jesus says, well, how come your heart is dead with God? And you're looking down on other people who aren't doing what you're doing and instead you're putting this horrible weight on them that's preventing them from knowing God as well. You see, Jesus is enough, and so often we don't believe he is, and so we add to that and add to that and add to that to prove that we're worthy before God. No wonder some of us are following Jesus, and yet it feels like we're in some sort of prison with God. Well, the third way, the promise of people-pleasing. Do whatever you need to do to earn people's approval and they will give you freedom. So Paul is not only incensed at the Judaizers for preaching this message to the Galatians. He's also mad at the Galatians for actually listening to these people. And he's basically saying, look, you just gave in to them. They pressured you to believe something and you just caved to it. You just followed what they wanted you to do because you wanted their approval, you wanted to be liked, or you thought this was the right way. And then Paul says about himself, he says this, obviously I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If people pleasing were my goal, I would not be a Christ's servant. And so often we wanted to have it both ways, right? The Galatians did. They wanted to worship Jesus, but they also wanted the approval of these Judaizers because they thought that's what was going to give them freedom. But as Paul says here, you can't have it both ways. You can't live for the approval of Jesus and serve him and do that with people as well. But we like both ways, don't we? I mean, like I like to put things in a box here and a box here. I want to be able to come to church. I want to worship. I want everything to be here because I love God. 
But then when I go to work, or I'm with my friends, or I'm on social media, or I'm at my kids' games, or whatever I'm at, and I also want to be liked by those people. And how quickly we forget about this box over here, the Jesus box, by giving in to these people because we want to be liked. I mean, how often, because you want to be liked or you want people's approval, you will do things you would never do just so someone will be your friend. Or you can be on the in group or that people will walk away thinking you're something. Some of my worst decisions in my life had to do with I wanted people to like me. <laughs> and what's really scary about that, and I don't think we talk about it enough, is that the people that like you, if you're living this way, they don't like you. You want to know how I know that? They like a false version of you. They like the person that you put out to them. They like the person who may go to church but will cave on all of these social issues because you don't want to be criticized. They like the person that will read the Bible but also give in to temptation and do what everybody else is doing. That version of you is not you. And so many of us are lonely, even though we have a lot of friends, because we've lived to be liked so long, and we go to bed realizing they don't even like me. I've put myself out there in a way that isn't truly me. And you wonder why so many of us feel so lonely in, around so many people is because we feel like we're a fraud. If I were to really take my mask off, or I really be myself, what would people really think? That's why the author of Proverbs, I think, put it perfectly. He says, fearing people is a dangerous trap. The language he's using literally is to set a trap for an animal to kill it. This is a trap that is so easily set for us, and we don't even oftentimes know it's happening, but when, when you're in it, it is tiring, lonely, empty, and exhausting. This freedom that you thought in trying to, of course, still love Jesus, but also sell yourself out to be liked is nothing short of hell on earth. The only answer to this, the author of Proverbs says, is but trusting the Lord means safety. Fearing people is a trap. And if you go into this trap, you will be trapped. You will be confined. You will be put back into the prison cell. You still will be drowning. But trusting in the Lord brings safety. That word safety literally means to be brought on high. It's as if you're walking towards this trap and you're about to be trapped and someone grabs you and places you on high so you don't end up falling into that trap. And the author of Proverbs says, if you don't want to be trapped by people-pleasing and just doing what everybody else wants you to do, if you really want to be true to who God has made you, if you want to be out of the trap of religion that says I have to earn my way to God, if you want out of the trap that says I need to be happy by having these and doing these things and whatever it is, the only way is to trust in the Lord. He is the only way that will bring you on high. You may not believe me, you may not agree with me, but if you feel like you're in a trap in a different way, 
and you've tried this way your entire life, maybe trusting in the Lord is now the first step to bring you to that safety that you've always longed for, to get you out of that prison cell, to rescue you from drowning. That's why when Paul writes this letter, he's going to address a lot of things over the next eight weeks. But in order to make sure he's okay with the Galatians and they understand what the gospel really is, he says these verses again. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Verse 6. I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon from God. This God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. There are a lot of promises that will bring you freedom. And oftentimes it's attached to Jesus. But there's only one true promise that comes from the gospel. The gospel meaning good news. And it's that God's grace and mercy alone will lead to peace and freedom. Peace and freedom we long to have comes from God's grace and his mercy that's displayed in the person and the work and sacrifice of Jesus. And at the end of the day, it's not Jesus plus something. No, it's Jesus plus nothing else equals the freedom that we've longed to have. And so whether it's the freedom that you've never discovered before and you want to discover that today, or you have added something else to Jesus and you still feel like you're drowning, God himself has come to you with a rope and a life preserver. He alone has the key to unlock the prison door. It is your choice through Jesus and Jesus himself to take hold of that life preserver or to walk out of the prison door that's been opened for you. What will you choose? Let's pray together. Father, I'm just grateful for rescuing me, not just in the beginning when I ultimately needed you, but every single day when I go to other things other than you to truly give me the life that you promised me. So often our hearts attach themselves to things in this world or trying to prove ourselves to you or trying to like, find approval in other people and them liking us to get what only you can give us. Help us to find satisfaction in you and you alone. In Jesus' name.